Well, it's my joy to be here <clears throat> among you. And if you're new with us, I am the interim pastor. And I have just been so delighted to be here, Nancy and I have. And we were so delighted to be able to go on the retreat. The only thing that would have made it better is that some of you who weren't with us would have been present. And if you uh, haven't, uh, weren't able to get get there, the talks are online. If you go to the place where you find our sermons, they're there, and the handouts for three of the talks that were left over are there as well for you to take. But I want to tell you, they were wonderful, just wonderful uh, messages, challenging in, in some ways, and especially the one on charitable disagreements. I would strongly encourage you to listen to that and then uh, really take stock of your life and then ask the Lord uh, to increase our capacity to disagree uh, charitably. We are in Galatians chapter 5 and I know that we've moved at a fairly steady, deliberate pace and the pace is going to pick up here now. Please, if you would, stand and join me as I lead us in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, be pleased to grant that our ears would be open, our hearts receptive, that in your goodness that we might receive what you'd say to us today through the Apostle. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 5, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You may be seated. The gospel explodes how we think God should deal with wicked people. Instead of just giving them what they deserve, 
God extends mercy and grace and forgiveness and in the gospel even gifts them with a righteousness they could never obtain. The gospel turns upside down and explodes our notions of what freedom is. Gospel freedom is not the freedom to indulge our sinful desires. It is freedom from sin. It is freedom not uh, to sin. To actually give yourself to sin is to be enslaved. Gospel freedom is not the freedom to take advantage of people, to exploit your neighbor, but it is the freedom to love them and show them the same love that you've received in Christ. It is not an excuse to ignore, neglect, or abuse our fellow man. And gospel freedom is the freedom from having uh, to uh, earn God's acceptance and approval by your obedience. Rather, uh, it's, it's gifted to us. But it is not freedom to disregard uh, the law. The gospel gives us both a new power, new reasons, and new desires to actually obey God. And the gospel is intended to produce love in us. Real gospel freedom has its goal, a life of love in us. And here's where the gospel explodes our notions about how it is that we actually become different people, better people. The process is really counterintuitive. It's, well, it's poorly understood actually by many people. It is not a do-it-yourself project. It's not a self-help program with some, you know, videos on YouTube and a few motivational talks uh, there uh, to be uh, found on the TED Talks website. No, it's not that at all. It's something very, very different. It is not the project of moral reform which is motivated by either fear or pride. See, fear doesn't steal because it thinks if I get caught, there'll be consequences. And pride doesn't steal because it says I'm better than that. No, real change and lasting change is the work of the Holy Spirit. As we live by the Spirit, he will produce his fruit uh, in us, the fruit of love. Now, what Paul says here can be summarized just like this. Be who you are. That's really the essence of what uh, he says. Paul moves, if you like grammar, from the indicative, who you now are in Christ. You have been made alive in him. To the imperative, keep in step with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. And if you've been following our series in Galatians, you know we've talked a great deal about the gift of righteousness, this passive gift that's imputed to us. And we're apt to think, well, now I've got a handle on that, how do I move on? 
to becoming a better person? How do I move on uh, to be uh, sanctified? And that is the wrong question to ask. You never move beyond this gift of righteousness that you receive passively. You don't contribute to this gift. It is given to you and you receive it passively uh, by faith. And it is the foundation for all lasting uh, change. This gift of a right relationship with God is the gift of faith. In fact, Paul in Romans uh, 9 talks about the pursuit of deep uh, change and he uses the language of righteousness. He writes, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. In other words, sanctification, just like being made right with God, being changed is fundamentally an expression of faith and not of our efforts. Now, I need to say a lot about that, but it's that part that's especially counterintuitive. And so, uh, I've put this in the outline for you, those of you who want to take notes. Look to the cross for the gift of righteousness and never stop looking at the cross. We grow in actual, to use the theological word, active righteousness by faith and not by trying harder. Now, I'll qualify that in a little bit, but you really need to hear the weight of that. We have to orient our hearts to the gift of righteousness daily and hourly because actually we want to be right and we want to be strong. It's very deep within us. Just get into a disagreement with somebody and you'll see just how much you want to be right and you'd like to show them they are wrong. It's very deep uh, within us. And what happens when uh, we aren't oriented toward this gift of righteousness is that we try to warm our hearts with our accomplishments or with the approval of others. You know, your accomplishments at being responsible and good and keeping public righteousness, and I won't define this word, but having common uh, virtue. Or you look to other people to give it to you. You look for the approval, the smiles, the affirmation of other people. And we must feed on the gift of righteousness. And we have to do commerce with it. Now, all of you do commerce. You go to the store and you get something you need, right? That's commerce. Right? We, we usually do our commerce uh, with uh, paper money or mostly now electronic transfers. But, you know, um, we uh, need something and we go buy it. Well, what we need is the forgiveness of our sins uh, and to rely on it to be right and strong. And only going back continually to this gift given to us in the gospel will enable us actually to grow a life of love. Because trying to grow a life of love out of merely human resources, out of ourselves, apart from the Spirit, is actually, well, self-sanctification. It's a do-it-yourself project. And it usually looks like moralism. 
Now, I know that strikes probably some of you as a very strange thing uh, to say. And so when you look a little deeper, and in fact Paul says this here in this passage, what needs to change in us is not just our outward actions, oh, they absolutely need to be changed, but it's our desires. Our desires are the issue. We want and we desire things, good things, too much. We over-desire them. We desire them to excess. We might desire uh, beauty or health, romance or material security. We might uh, desire success in what comes with it, whether it's at school or it's in athletics or the arts or at work or, or, or to be known as a person who's really a, a good parent or a good neighbor or a good friend. We desire that. Just think about friendship. We want these things so much that we actually uh, paint pictures in our minds. We have images. We create entire films of what our lives will be like. Uh, And we believe these films. We tell ourselves, if we have more friends, true friends, better friends, then we'll really be happy, we'll be understood, we'll be cared for, and they'll give us the approval we cannot find anywhere else. And so we pursue friendship, which is a wonderful thing, in such a way that we neglect other relationships and responsibilities. Or we compromise our integrity. All too tragically, uh, many, many girls, many young women uh, surrender their uh, purity in order to have the affection, the friendship of, of a man. And we could develop that out. We could work that out for anything, good thing you might desire. And it's in our over-desires, in our excessive desires, that we create a life that's ultimately independent of God that is self-directed, that feeds and is strengthened off the self-life. Now, here's where this word flesh is, well, that's literally the word that Paul writes in the Greek, isn't really a very helpful word uh, for many of us because we think of the flesh as our bodies and our physical appetites, and that is not what Paul means here. Flesh is being opposed to spirit, and it involves much more than our bodily appetites. It is really our life as fallen people apart from the grace of God, apart from the presence of the Spirit of God in us. And that's why throughout the sermon I'm going to use the word self-life, because that's what it is. It is living out of yourself, living for yourself. And no matter how much it may be disguised by a life of religion, it is a life that is ultimately hostile and distant from God, who is the only source of joy and harmony and love. You see, these desires ultimately really are idolatrous. They're saying, I'm looking to this thing instead of God, to give me my deepest uh, needs. And inevitably, an idol demands that you live in a certain way. It demands sacrifices. And until you believe that God can satisfy you, and that in Christ alone is found the life that you desire, you're breaking the first commandment. You're loving something more than God, and you have an idol. 
I hope you can see that. That's so important. In fact, I'm going to say as an aside, because I know some of you are very learned in here, the Old Testament primarily talks about our problem uh, with sin in terms of idolatry. In the New Testament, almost consistently in terms of desire. These are really not different things. They're actually the same thing, just looked at uh, from different points of view. And so you see the problem, our problem in becoming different people is our desires. It's what we desire. And the only way to overcome uh, inordinate desires that are too big, that are excessive desires, is by having a stronger desire. There's got to be something you want more. I heard a friend once uh, say... He said, I loved football in high school. I lived for football. I played uh, football until I met Catherine. And then I desired Catherine. You see, his desire for Catherine displaced his desire for football. Well, the way change happens to us is that faith enables us to view the beauty, the sufficiency, and the desirability of God of the riches of his love, of the glories of being able to fellowship with Christ and to be indwelt uh, by the Spirit. And we have to reorient our affections away from these things that we desire that are good things, mostly created uh, things, to the Lord God himself. And the Spirit is the one who does this for us. He's the one who reveals Jesus to us so that we actually taste the goodness of God. Now, this is nurtured in worship and in meditation. And we ask for it in prayer. And this is one of the reasons that corporate worship weekly is so important if you want to become someone different. Because God has committed himself to be present in a special way uh, when we assemble. It may not be that you feel it's necessarily special uh, every week. But God is committed, the Spirit is committed to being here and working uh, in us. And absenting yourself from worship greatly hinders your spiritual uh, development. But there is a place for private worship, make no mistake about it. A place uh, where as we uh, carry uh, what's in our hearts, perhaps from Sunday morning or perhaps from uh, reading the Bible or something uh, else that helps us, it flows out into our daily lives. But you will avoid God and not look to him unless you know that you're loved and accepted and approved. And when you don't see that, that failure in your life is not uh, by, by his eyes that he's disappointed in you. If you don't see that, then what you'll do is you will orient yourself to something else. You'll look to something else. It's only when your heart is oriented toward this passive gift of righteousness and you know you're accepted, you know you're loved, and even when you mess up, you know that God is not saying, what a disappointment you are. It's only then uh, that you will you will grow. Because, see, if your failures to love God and others are exposed, what you'll do is you'll either do one of two things. You will either hide from God 
you'll withdraw. You can still come to church and hide, hide uh, from God. Or uh, you'll become very defensive. You'll bristle. You'll be prickly about all those things because you'll know you're doing them and you won't want to really acknowledge them. And they'll bother you. Now, this contradicts a lot of what is uh, taught in the Christian uh, church, which amounts to rely on rules or the law or self-effort. Look closely at Galatians 5.18. Perhaps you, you still have it open. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under flesh. Is that what it says? Some of you have your Bibles up? It does not say that. That's what you might think Paul would say. But it says, you are not under law. Why does he write that? Because he's still dealing with the error of these false teachers who said the law was the only safeguard against becoming slaves to the flesh of the sinful nature of the self-life. And Paul is saying the guidance of the Spirit is enough. This is Paul's third way. It's different from and superior to either legalism or lawlessness. The gospel's another way. Because being under the law is not a way to overcome the desires of the flesh. The real solution lies in being led by the Spirit. Let's just go a little bit deeper. And if you can't follow this, that's okay. Just hang with me, though, if you can. You see, Paul talks about this at length in Romans 7 and 8. There again, he, he explores how the law and this flesh are closely linked. Paul says the law, far from restraining the flesh, actually produces the opposite effect. He says the law provokes and increases sin because our fallen human nature, the flesh, causes a, purpose, a person to be at cross purposes with God's law. That's Romans 7, verses 5 and 8. And he adds that owing to the weakness of our flesh, which does not and cannot submit to God's law, that's Romans 8, 3, 4, and 7, the more earnestly you strive to keep God's law by your own efforts, the flesh, the more inextricably uh, do you find yourself in the grip of indwelling sin. So apart from the work of the Spirit, apart from the grace of God, keeping the law of God actually awakens sin in us. And see, here is the really ironic thing, probably really struck people in Galatia as odd, that the law and the flesh lead to identical results. Now, it's at this uh, uh, place where it becomes clearer that as we try harder to please God by rule-keeping, uh, that there's something deep that happens within us. And this is something that, well, sometimes gets assumed in church. That it's this, if you know what to do, you'll do it. Now let me ask you, is that how life really works for you? Some of us know that we should, like, exercise more. As I get older, I have to stretch more. And I'm lazy about it but I pay for it when I don't. Uh, or we should spend less time uh, looking at screens. We should stop wasting time with some of those things. Or perhaps uh, we need to eat uh, uh, better. And of course, knowing that takes care of it, right? Of course it doesn't. Because that's not the problem. It's not knowing. It's about our desires. And see, when you come 
uh, to any set of rules, including the Ten Commandments, and think by trying harder, you can get it right, eventually, if you're honest, you'll recognize you're failing. That's not the obedience of faith. It's alone able to produce the actual righteousness God's after. What we end up doing is we end up managing our sin. Do you know what sin management is? It's being really careful about how you live. Some people don't see the sin that's actually at work uh, in your heart. Um, it's about image management. Usually comes along with sin management. You usually try to make sure that people don't really see what's going on inside of you. And so, you see, if you're a continually experiencing defeat, then hello! You're actually relying on the self-life. You are relying on the flesh. You're dependent on merely human resources. And I'm here to tell you God has something far better uh, for you. And the gospel is explosive because it produces actual change. It's dynamic. It's a power and a force. And this brings me to point two, which won't be nearly as long as the other points. These last points will take less time than the first. Look to the cross and recognize that you have been united to Christ in his death. Galatians 5.24 Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Paul is saying this is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Notice it's has crucified. It's past tense. And this is a truth that you can bank on. And it brings great encouragement. Because when you trusted Christ, you were united to him. And a death blow was struck to the desires and passions of the self-life. It no longer controls you. You don't have to submit to it. You don't have to give yourself over to it. Your pride doesn't have to control you. You don't need to boast in your accomplishments or in your body image. Your desires for comfort and ease can be said no to. Uh, you can choose not to be critical or defensive or argumentative. Although if those are patterns deep within you, it won't be easy. I can tell you it will not be easy. And these may be your first impulses, but they do not have to rule your life. Third, look to the cross and do battle. Verses 16 and 17. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want. In other words, the Spirit and the self-life, or if you prefer the word flesh here, the, the Adamic nature, our fallen nature, they're in conflict and it's impossible to remain neutral. You're either living the desires of the spirit or you're living out of the desires of the flesh. There's no middle ground. There's no place in uh, between. You either serve the flesh or you serve and follow the spirit. But following the spirit means there will be a conflict and we must put to death uh, the desires of the flesh. We must use our freedom to choose what the Spirit desires, which means we have to deny ourselves and turn away from it and resist and struggle against it and even kill off the self-life each time it manifests itself. 
Jesus puts it this way. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. That's not just certain acts of sin, which is how it's often understood, but no, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross is a figure for self-denial. It's not for one of those people that bothers you. It's not for a difficult circumstance. No, it's about uh, putting uh, to death. One of my heroes put it this way. Every follower of Christ has to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. Let's not only take our cross there and walk with it, but actually make sure that the execution takes place. We're actually to take the flesh, our willful, wayward self, and nail it to the cross. That is what repentance is. That's what we are hopefully doing when we come to this time of uh, confession. We're, we're taking ourselves and putting it to death. We are turning our back on the old life with its selfishness and sin. And this must be done without pity. And it will be painful. And it must be decisive. And it has to be done every day. Isn't that crummy? <laughs> I wish I could get it over with, you know? <laughs> Just get this done. <laughs> but it's not like that. It's not like seeing the dentist. You get it done. No? It's daily. And so Paul tells us that is the distinguishing feature of all Christians that they've crucified the flesh. And hence, we must be living by the Spirit and we must be led by the Spirit. This is an obligation. We must be living by the Spirit and we must be led by the Spirit. In other words, you need to be who you actually are. You are not the person you met before Christ encountered you. Those sinful, evil things you do is not who you are. You are new in Christ. You have a new life. And when Paul talks about these acts of the flesh, he means someone who's habitually engaged in these acts, not someone who has a slip. He's talking about somebody who has a lifestyle of the things he mentions there. So, the fourth point is rely on the Spirit. And this is both active and passive. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit is the source and sustaining power of the Christian life. Give full weight to that word live. And then the imperative, walk by the Spirit. The Spirit's the leader when we march uh, behind Him. And if you're continuously defeated, you're not relying on the Spirit. You're relying on the self-life. At some level, you're engaged in a DYI project of trying to improve yourself. We must be actually led by the Spirit. He's a gentleman. He's a person, and you must submit to his leadership and actively obey his uh, leading. And this is not automatic. It happens when you respond to and depend on and cooperate with him. And uh, uh, because he's a person, you can actually resist him. You can quench him. You can wound him. You can offend him. The power to love comes from him. 
the power to live the life that Paul calls the obedience of faith is from him. It's not within you. In Atlanta, when I was pastoring there, this wonderful woman started coming to church. Her name was Merlene uh, Lockhart Thomas. And Merlene had metastatic breast cancer. She, she had breast cancer for the second time, and she knew she was dying. And she had come to our church, which was across the street from the neighborhood she lived in, because she wanted her husband, Michael, to have a church that would care for him when she died. Michael was utterly devastated uh, when she died. I've never seen anybody as grieved by the loss of his spouse. He became utterly dysfunctional at work. He worked for the uh, Atlanta Police Department, and they gave him an extended uh, period away uh, from uh, work and, and absence for a long time. And Michael was not the kind of guy who was going to come in and sit in my office and talk about his grief. And the only thing I could think of to do with Michael was to exercise with him. Now, this occurred to me because Michael was an NCAA athlete in college. He was a track athlete. And at the age of 40, he looked like an Olympian still. And here I am. I'm 55 years old, and I'm going to go work out with this man. Well, I submitted myself to his leadership, and he introduced me to an instrument of torture known as kettlebells. And he immediately uh, graduated me to double kettlebells. And I did exercises I never dreamed of. The clean and snatch, the kettlebell uh, swing, the Turkish get-up. You can go find out about that if you don't know that particular form of torture. And we would do push-ups and dips and pull-ups. I hadn't done a pull-up since I was in elementary school. I could barely do one then. I couldn't do one now. And I followed him. He was like a personal trainer. And this is how you need to think about the Holy Spirit. You need uh, to walk by the Spirit, which means to live under his constant, moment-by-moment direction, control, and, and guidance. Well, just what does that look like? Well, of course, you don't uh, meet him outdoors for training. You know, when, when Michael would train me, he'd say after I was utterly exhausted, let's go for a six-mile run. <laughs> I said, you can go for a six-mile run. Uh, oh, So what you do is, it, what I do anyway, is I pray, Father, I, I'm your child, and I don't have the power to love people. I don't even know how to love people. Thank you for the Spirit. The, the Spirit is this wonderful gift you've given to me because you've made me your child. Love through me. Show me how it is to live this life of love. Now, here's one other thing, and this is really uh, hard uh, for us as North Americans to get a handle on because we're very individualistic. You tend to think, well, it's just me and Jesus, and I'll get all this done. I want to tell you that is not right. The Holy Spirit will use, and you need other Christians to be a part of your life. By this I mean far more than casual friendship. Even friends who share common interests and spend time with each other. It's a depth of relationship where you disclose the real you. Where you can have someone really ask you, how are you doing in your relationship with God? 
how are you actually acting? It's a relationship where you can be deeply honest. Now, this kind of relationship can start here at church, but it needs a structure. It needs support. It doesn't just happen. It needs regular contact. It might be a mentor. It might be someone who intentionally engages you in a discipleship relationship. Or it might be in a small group that meets regularly for the support and mutual encouragement and learning how to live out together the one another commandments. If you don't know what that phrase is, I put the list of them in your uh, uh, bulletin. You simply cannot do those here after church in the few minutes we spend together. It's just not enough time. And it's not consistent enough to actually learn uh, what it means to do that thing. If you are relying on the Spirit, the Spirit will produce fruit in your life. It grows slowly, but it grows inevitably, and it begins inwardly. Who else but Jesus could set us free from our sin nature, from the flesh, from the self-life? The patterns of self-reliance that are so deep within us, independence uh, from God, who through his death secured a righteousness uh, that we don't work for, and who sends the Spirit, who transforms us and enables us to love, who's our guide and our leader. As we rely on Him and consciously choose to be led by Him and follow Him step by step, He brings forth these fruits. Come to this table and consider what loss of freedom He endured that you might be free. What yielding of His rights What tenderness uh, toward us is displayed in these elements. Come to this table and allow the self-life to be exposed and the cross to grow for you, to grow larger and larger as you see something of your sin and cling to his righteousness, which is now yours. And at this table, turn away from the self-life and turn toward Christ as those who've been set free. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, make these things real to us. Work what is pleasing uh, to you in us. Make us sensitive uh, before your Holy Spirit. We thank you for our Savior as we turn to him now, using these means of grace he's given us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.